Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Hands up if you have worked in a toxic environment. Now, I tend to remember the jobs where I've loved the office and the team more than the jobs when it's been hard. But today I'm feeling anxious because this next chat is all about what to do when your workplace is toxic and those bad memories are coming back. But putting that to one side, because my guest is a fabulous leadership expert and a beacon of positivity. Margot Faraci has two decades of experience in corporate Australia, working at Macquarie Bank, NAB, Seek.com, Ashurst and CBA. In this episode, we explore how to be a leader that creates lasting positive change and how to spot and manage a toxic workplace. Margie, thank you for joining me. It feels like it's been years of me trying to get you into the studio and have a chat to you. So thank you for making time. Can I start by asking you, how do you describe yourself these days? I describe myself as a leader first, a speaker, an author. I do some coaching as well. But really, I'm on a mission to transform leadership globally. Well, just a small ambition then. Yes. Well, that'll get me to Friday. We'll start something else next week. (laughs) I was going to say, that is a classic sentence from someone who used to have a high-flying career. (laughs) (laughs) So you did have a high-flying career. Can you talk a bit about a bit about your banking and corporate experience? Yeah, so I loved it. Like, for the most part, I loved it. And growing up, I just started to care a lot about fairness, equity and justice. What I really care about and what I've continued to care about is how we treat each other. That's what I care about. And I thought that meant I wanted to be a lawyer. And, you know, I went to a public high school in the country and no one from there had ever gone on to law school. And so that also became a bit of a challenge in itself. And I did go to law school and I got a job in a big firm here in Sydney. And that was terrific because it gave me a platform to Sydney. But ultimately, it had nothing to do with people. You know, it was documents. The reason I actually got the, I suppose, the courage in the end to change after I'd put like 17 years of my life into it, because by now I'm 27 and I decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I was 10 and I had the blinkers on. My mum died. I had the gift of my mum dying. So she was 53, I was 27, and she died after a three-month illness. And I cared for her. She was, my parents were divorced and she lived on her own. So I went back to Swan Hill and I cared for her. And that really was, in so many ways, obviously devastating. But the gift of it was, it really taught me that you've got to go and do what you're put here to do. And I don't think I'm put here to be a lawyer. And I think I'm trying to keep up appearances and please everyone else. So the reason... I went into banking is I wanted to do something that was client-facing, that was with people and that was getting deals done because all of those things don't are the opposite when you're a lawyer. And I, I'd come from a pretty entrepreneurial family. Banks wouldn't talk to me because I, I had arts law. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. 
Mm. Uh, and a couple of recruiters actually said, you're never going to get a job in a bank, so forget it. NAB wouldn't talk to me. All the banks who later hired me as an executive wouldn't talk to me. Macquarie got me. I mean, who in 2004 didn't want to work for Macquarie Bank? It was incredible. I did all the testing. I thought, my God, I'll never hear from them again. And, and they took me on. What I loved about it was I could help people grow their businesses. And I really cared about that because my parents were in business and I knew what the bank could do. As I was elevated into leadership roles, what I realized was my purpose was still around how we treat each other, but it was around being a great leader so that people feel treated well. And that I learned over the course of my banking career in the following 20 years was a great strength of mine. And sometimes it, it was my undoing as well, absolutely. But I still care about that. And, you know, in a lot of ways, banking for me was all about how we can treat our market, our clients and, and each other. And that's why I wanted the biggest leadership role possible. I have about 15 questions going through my mind right now. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. But I've settled on asking you about money because you did that classic thing our generation did was if you had the ability to be a lawyer or a banker, you feel privileged and you take that journey, right? If you've got that ability and it's going to open up for you, it's a no-brainer in a way. But actually puts you on a pretty stark trajectory around the house, the car, the clothes, the handbags. Did that play at all into your thinking at that point? Well, of all the questions you could have asked, this is probably the one that's going to trigger me the most. So well done. You've got a talent. I have problems about financial security. Growing up, we had a family business and I can tell you every dollar, every I was always so interested in it. It started in the backyard and like they, mum and dad built a purpose-built thing in the backyard and then you know, ultimately was very successful, but it was very, very difficult. There were times, you know, now in this current interest rate rising environment, that takes me back to the early 90s when interest rates were at 17% and mum and dad had borrowed millions of dollars and nothing was moving, nothing was selling. It was a really tricky home environment as well. And a lot of that was caused by financial stress. And then once mum and dad broke up, I saw what a lack of financial independence can do for a woman. I saw that. So I was always going to have control of my own finances. That was always a thing for me. So I am the primary breadwinner in our family and that's a responsibility. But, you know, truth be told, I was always going to earn what I needed to earn. What it's meant for me over the years is, I'll talk about my relationship with money, but I think there's something else here in terms of helping other people with their money over the years. What it's meant for me over the years is because I've felt the insecurity of um, not having money growing up and what that meant for what was happening at home, I do have this thing around when we don't have money, I'm not safe. And so in order to take the risks I've taken, I have had to let go of that. I had a few career breaks where I've jumped off and had nothing to go to and I've had to get comfortable to say to myself, no, no, you're safe. it's okay, you're safe. And I've never happily, I think because I had the background I had, I've never really bought into the, I mean, you know, we don't drive fancy cars, all that sort of stuff. I've never really bought into keeping up with anyone else but certainly that drive for security has been both a blessing in many ways, but it's hampered my choices in many ways. Or, sorry, I've still made the right choices, I think, for me, but I've had a lot of fear with them that I've had to really let go of in order to pursue my real purpose. I believe after going through all that in my own family, but also helping, you know, literally thousands of clients grow their businesses and deal with their own money, I believe that how we feel about money is a symbol for how we feel about ourselves. And it was actually amazing. Once I let go of that, the first time I had a career break was I was turning 40 and I was pretty broken and burnt out and everything and was never going back into banking. I went back in two years later. 
But at that point, I had nowhere else to go. I had nothing else in the pipeline and I just had to leave. And I had to get comfortable. That's when I realized that how I feel about money is actually how I feel about myself. So I had to just back myself and say, I am enough and we have enough. I do think how we deal with money is absolutely critical to our ultimate um, sense of success. I just want to finish with the one question on that, and that is now you're running your own business, how competitive are you in the success of your business? And therefore, (laughs) you know, a success metric is financial success. Yeah. How are you dealing with that? Well, yeah, I've got my old chief of staff from my last job. He's happily, he's retired now. It's terrific. And he's now what I call my CFO, which actually means we meet six, every six weeks and he does a forecast for me and we get into the detail and everything. And just like when we work together, he's across the detail and I'm across the trend. That's all I need. If he's onto it, that's fine. But I'm doing better than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. What I know is most businesses in their first couple of years generally make a loss. That will happen to me this year. But, you know, I've got more revenue than I thought I would. And so that's great. I've kept my my uh, expectations really low. And my dad always used to say, who ultimately was a great businessman, he always used to say, just write down your worst case scenario on one piece of A4. If you can't fit it on a piece of blank A4, then it's too complicated. Don't do the deal. But if you can write that down on one piece of A4 and you can stare at it and get comfortable with it, off you go. So I've done that. Fascinating. So moving on from money, and I think we should do a whole other episode on money because I do think it really is important to um, how women see themselves. And yeah. as you say, independence and uh, just for the record, very similar. Very, right. very, very driven by the independence that money gives me. Yeah. Not by the wealth, but by the independence, yeah. having freedom. And um, it's terrific. Yeah. And I think our grandmothers did not have this opportunity, Helen, oh. and I, I'm so grateful for it. Yeah, absolutely. But you, it also does put you on a trajectory into a career path that may not be, you know, might not ultimately ultimately be good for you, which is what happened to you. So let's let's talk about <laughs> you're in you're in the high flying career. What about it on a day to day level is making you feel uncomfortable? Well, so much of it I loved. You know, so much of it, the tribe around you, and you get every, you just go in and you're around your people every day, and the fun. And I mean, I love having fun, and I'm playful, and all those things, and just you know, when catastrophes occur and you're in this, I just love being in the trenches with people and sorting stuff out. You know, stuff happens every day. What was making me uncomfortable is that I could see, well, earlier earlier on, I could see things didn't move quick enough for me, you know, and that's, you know, big organisations are like that. And so that was always frustrating. But ultimately, when I did take that career break when I was 40 and I joked and said, you know, I was never going back to banking, I went back in two years later, what I worked out in the intervening period because I had time was actually what I care about is, you know, what I want to do is be, I, I want to change leadership. I needed the time and space to work that out. So going back in as an executive, I knew that there was a finite period for it. But the thing that made me uncomfortable to answer your question in that point was I knew I wanted to be doing something else. So I had to just really hold myself to account on when I was going to call time, keeping in mind that I was turning 44, turning 45, turning 46. My mum died when she was 53. What would she have done if she knew? All of a sudden, 53 is within reach, you know, before it seemed ancient when she died when I was 27. And so the thing that made me uncomfortable was this burning inside of me that, hey, listen, if you don't, if you don't jump soon, you're, you're going to waste your life. You're going to waste your life and you're not going to do what you were put here to do. So that was more me than the system, I think. Mm, so interesting. So let's cut to today. What does a day in your life look like now? I mean, we talked about independence. The independence I've got now is absolutely liberating. My diary is my own. 
And because of that complete overwhelm, the years of overwhelm and the years of 16 back-to-back meetings every day and the five hours of reading every night and the get out of every meeting and there's 10 voicemails to, you know, I'm really, really good now at managing my time and managing my boundaries and putting structure in. So I'm here with you today, but I've also been conducting research today. I've been reviewing stuff that's about to get, other podcasts that are about to get published. I set aside time to think creatively every day because ultimately my job now is to lift the conversation and really amplify the, the messages around leadership and how we treat each other. So I feel very grateful. I've got a boy in year 11 and a girl in year 10 and they're busy. And um, so there's all kinds of things that need to be done there. But I do make sure pretty much now that I'm home every afternoon at four o'clock and I catch them as they walk in and we might only get two minutes or whatever, but that's a joy as well. They'll be gone soon. So that's a real joy. One of the things you talk about is toxic workplaces. And I think that's something that we all can relate to. I tend to focus on the good workplaces and don't think too much about the toxic (laughs) ones that I've worked in. But, you know, when you put yourself back in that moment in time, when you're in that toxic space, I mean, it's pretty, pretty distressing to Mm. remember how that felt. How do you recognize a toxic workplace? Well, how you feel matters. You know, if if you feel mistreated, if you feel that things aren't being dealt with, that really matters. And that's a really strong indicator. Now, also notice though that your feelings are about you. You know, what we see above the surface is behavior, but what we have below the surface is my reaction to that behavior, which is going to be different to your reaction to that behavior, which is going to be different to the other 10 people in the room and how they react to the behavior, because we've all got different experiences, different backgrounds, all those sort of things. So I think the first step is if you're feeling uncomfortable with what's going on, then it's time to inquire further and think more about it. And I think when we think about toxicity, I really want to just define this early. People automatically go to the obvious, the bullying, the aggression, all those sort of things. What I think is the most prevalent form of toxicity in the workplace in Australia is the avoidance toxicity. So someone's behaving badly, your leader's not dealing with it. Decisions are not getting made. Your leader needs to have a hard conversation with their leader. They don't do it because they're too complicit. They stay. There's all this avoidance going on. And so both are troublesome and create toxicity. But I do want to just highlight that avoidance problem because people just think they're being nice. Well, <laughs> yeah. Like they're mean, avoiding difficulties. Because that's very subtle, right? Yeah. And so you can you could do two things. Either be unaware. Yep. You feel very unsettled, but you're not really aware that it's a toxic environment. Or you could be incredibly aware mm. that actually no decisions are being made and you're sitting there in limbo and... Mm every day is just extraordinarily difficult. Yep. I thought when you said avoidance, you were going to say, however, that people are avoiding you. So you know in that workplace where, you know, you're not in favour. Somehow the the team has decided that you're the one that's the troublemaker, they don't want to hear your opinions, you're always, you know, pushing against the the groupthink, and so you just find yourself left out. Look, I think... That's worth a conversation if that's how you feel. Absolutely, that's worth a conversation if that's how you're feeling. You're looking at me like that's never happened to you. I have definitely been the disruptor. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm sure you have been. Yeah, I've definitely been the disruptor. Oh, God, yeah. And when I think back, oh, gosh, now I'm getting a bit triggered here. But (laughs) Sorry. No, 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 that's good. This is good chat. It's good because I want everyone to benefit from what's happened. There's definitely, there was definitely a couple of times when I spoke up about some behaviour that was terrible and I was out of favour. And I had to ride that because I knew that I, what I was doing was right. And I knew my intention was to create a greater good environment. I knew that. 
But that was very isolating. But I'm definitely someone who's been hired along the way to change things. I'm definitely someone who's been hired to speak up and um, lift the situation. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think the way that there is a way to do that. I think if you've built really strong relationships along the way, that's that's the best platform you can have because you're trusted. If you're someone who's who's really good at their job, be good at your job. That's job number one, perform. If you're not good at your job, find out how you can be and go and get the help you need. But be good at your job. That gives you a lot of a, a huge platform to be a change maker. Be someone who's trusted and known as someone who works for the greater good, not, not from ego. That's important as well. And when you're raising problems, you do need to come from a greater good intention, not because you're committed to being right or you're committed to undermining someone or you're committed to beating someone. That's extremely good advice. So if you're listening to this and you're in a toxic environment, what advice do you have? Number one, it's really important. The best thing you can do, one of the great things about working in corporates is you've got your peeps around you. So go and find some peers and test your thinking with them. Test your reaction to what's going on versus their reaction to what's going on. Get aligned on, yeah, I didn't see it that way, but you're right, there is a trend now. You're going to, you know, like you're not going to see everything the same way and that's really healthy but just test your reaction. I think it's important to work out where the toxicity is coming from. Maybe it's not your leader. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe you've got a terrific leader who's also struggling with it. So if you feel safe with your leader, let's have a chat about that. How do you manage it? You know, this is what I'm experiencing. If it is your leader, then that's difficult and it's going to happen a lot if you have a corporate career. It just is, which is why my mission to change leadership globally is so important to me because I think it is so prevalent. But often people don't know that they're creating toxicity. And the avoidance part that I just talked about, mostly people just think they're being nice by not addressing things. And it's problematic. So what do you do about that bit? I think as a leader, first of all, ask yourself where you're doing it. I have definitely done that, particularly early in my leadership career where I wanted to be the person who, you know, saw people's humanity first. I still want to be that person, but often that meant rescuing people and not holding them to account which created heaps more work for me as I was having my babies and trying to do all that as well. So often people don't know that they're doing it. And if you want to talk about that with someone, again, I'd go and just talk to a really trusted peer. And you probably, in any team you're in, you probably only have one or two peers that you really trust with your life. But go and have a chat with them about how you might approach it. You can role play it, whatever. But you've got to come from that platform or that intention of being there for the greater good because you actually want... You want them to have a great experience and you want everyone around us to have a great experience. Rescuing people. So you mean you've got someone on the team that's not performing and you as a leader are completely convinced that you can fix them. 100%. Yes. I that's think the I might, first five years of my leadership. I think I might have done the same thing a yeah. few times. We see it all the time and it's because, you know, often they're really nice persons. So I talk about really nice underperformers and they're just not good at their job. <laughs> And the thing is, we need to perform. So what do you do? Like you tell a really well, nice person, they're not good at their job. Well, first of all, How do you, you have do that? To, first of all, you have to be convinced that you have to address your own, what you've avoided. So you have to address that within yourself. You have to find out why and you have to forgive yourself for that because we're here, right? But ultimately, what you've done by avoiding these conversations is create a whole lot of extra work for the team for yourself. And you're not doing that person any favour. Because that person probably knows, I was a lawyer when I started out. I was terrible at it. I wish someone had called it. <laughs> it was so bad. Uh, so I was probably a really nice, fun underperformer. And then I think the first thing to do is discuss it with them with compassion, always with compassion and respect. You get a, someone who's toxic in your team, you treat them with compassion and respect as well because they're human beings. 
this person, this really nice underperformer needs your compassion, needs your respect, and needs really clear delineation on what's required of them. You know, someone comes to me and says, hey, Margot, this is where we need you to be. You're nowhere near there. Here's where you are. Tell me what you think about that. Did you know that? First question is always, did you know? Because, mm. you know, you might be new leading that team and that person's you survived quite happily under the previous leader for 20 years and no one's ever called it. They'll be shocked, you know. And they'll probably go into fear and all those sort of things. But you'll work out in those first few conversations whether they're motivated to correct the situation and you can only work with them if they are or if they're just determined to stay where they're at, in which case a different decision needs to be made. And hopefully that's together. Did you ever get good at that? Yeah, I'm good at it now. And it's, it always takes a few years of my life. It always gives me more grey hair because at the end of the day, I'm impacting another human being. Here's what I know now. I am responsible for my team's performance. My team is a reflection of me and my values. I do not ever want to be the person who whinges about the people in my team. That's like whinging about your kids. Like my team is a reflection of me and I've got to deliver. And the best thing I can do, we know that once you've chosen the right people, the the greatest indicator of success is the level of psychological safety in your team. And if I'm not addressing that with that person, that underperforming person, I am diminishing psychological safety because people are watching going, Margot doesn't deal with things and therefore... I don't know if something bad happens, is Margot going to deal with it? So that's where I have to go to. And I have to go into that conversation with care and compassion and respect for the person, understanding that I'm not responsible for their financial security. I care about it, but I'm not responsible for it. I'm not responsible for their happiness. And I have to trust that by having this conversation, ultimately this person might go through some difficulty. I'm going to help them get to a better place within, whether within my team or outside my team. If you've got someone on your team who is the toxic colleague, and I'm not sure whether you have had this circumstance, but how would you manage that? Had heaps of that. So the problem, the problem is this is this toxic. We're going to I'm going to call it, the, call it the toxic high performer. This is often the person who's making all the money. You know, I was always in P and L roles, so we had to deliver results. You know, and ultimately in my last role, we're fronting up to shareholders. I'm running a third of the bank, and we're fronting up to shareholders, and I'm responsible for that. So what dealing with that is really, really important. It's hard because they're delivering your results often. The myth in corporate Australia is, well, we can't touch them because the clients love them and they make money. You have to back yourself here. You have to say, you know what? What I know for sure is that person is actually diminishing the performance of the team overall. They are not performing at their potential because that person actually is taking up all the oxygen, maybe damaging them. Um, maybe creating a lot of what I call interference in the team so that people actually can't run in a straight line. So I have to trust that once we deal with this person, then the performance overall is going to be better. Uh, Sometimes that requires a a conversation with my boss to say, listen, that particular business might be out of order and might go backwards for a little while. It's going to be better in the long run. Just give me some coverage here. Like that's an adult conversation. And then actually going to the person with all the evidence, with all the examples and saying, this is what you do. This is the impact of what you do. Did you know? Same as the underperformer. Did you know? And I reckon 50% of the time that person is horrified and seeks support to change. Terrific outcome. And another 50% of the time that person 
is not motivated to change and then we have to make a different decision and always with compassion and respect. And usually as the leader, it's going to blow back on you and there's a playbook that says they might then accuse you of bullying or all that sort of stuff. You just got to roll with that and know that that could happen. Is there a gender issue at play here? Do you see that happen with both men and women where you've had to have those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, 100%. I've seen that with both men and women. To me, there's no there's no trend on gender in terms of the responses I get or anything like that. The hardest one I've dealt with is when this guy had worked with me for a year and one of his direct reports came directly to me. One of my peers rang me and said, so-and-so's done all these things. And I said, well, I need to hear that from the people that he's done that to, allegedly. So then those people rang me and they didn't really know me and they told me and that was hard because, you know, I'd been wrong. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to work out that you're wrong. And um, ultimately we investigated and, and that particular guy actually confessed to everything, which is the only time I've ever seen that happen. Usually people deny it and probably for good reasons. Sometimes they haven't done things. But he confessed to everything and he could no longer be a leader on my team. But God, I admired his honesty. And you totally missed it. Yeah, totally missed it. The lesson for leaders there is, well, he was in another city, you know, I'd been dealing with, other, I'd, been in, I'd been in the business about eight months and I'd inherited the team and I had bigger problems to fix before getting to that. His business was underperforming, but I thought we could get there. And I'd been getting to know him, you know, over the period. But the big lesson there is always, and it's just something you've got to keep in mind as soon as you start getting promoted, is that people treat you differently when you're at the top of the org chart. When leaders talk about their direct report and say, he's terrific, he's a great guy, whatever, she's a great person, they might be to you, but that doesn't mean that they treat people down the org chart the same way. So you've really got to be conscious of that. Skip meetings are really important there. So let's unpack that a bit. Skip meetings, so understanding whether someone's good at managing up, down or sideways. Yep. What do you look for? In those skip meetings, so uh, number one, when you're leading a team, you should always be looking at who would backfill your team. So number one, I, w- I want to go and meet the next level down and understand where they're at, what their ambitions are, where they want to go. If they want a, a higher leadership position, then I'm going to say, well, you know, what help? here's what I think you need to do, but you tell me what, you, what help you think you need and let's put a structure around that. Has to be driven by them. It's their career, not mine. That's another mistake I made early on. I took all that on. So that's the first thing. I want to understand them, where they're at, what they need. I want to understand what's happening with their leader. I want to understand the results they're getting. And if they're terrific, then great. What can we all learn? And I used to do podcasts with people after skip meetings and if and share best practice across the business because that was a great way for peer-to-peer learning. If they're struggling, what help do they need? What might I be able to bring to them? And just understand them like really well and always trying to think about if one of my team left tomorrow, who would be around who might be good for that role. That's such a a thought process of someone that runs a PL. Yeah. Because you you don't have any money. room. Yeah, you don't have any room for <laughs> failure, right? So no. you're always you're always looking for the next the yeah. next person to take on the role. How much time do you spend on this stuff? Because I do this podcast every week and talk about best practice. And it always strikes me that it sounds very, very time consuming. Yeah. When actually there's a whole lot of doing work and external work and external clients and thinking and had a terrific interview here one day with Mel Silver, the head of Google, you know, and she blocks out a day, I think Fridays, where she just does, you know, deep focus work. How much time do you think you should actually devote to, you know, to that skip meeting, to that person who is your future leader and potentially going to step into, you know, a situation when you're in a pickle and also understanding if you've got staff that manage up really well but are managing sideways terribly, you know, picking up those signals and knowing what's going on. Yeah. 
The actual t- the time is important. The reflection afterwards is important too because maybe they have been trying to tell you something but you don't realise it until you get into bed that night and close yes. your eyes. You're processing. So first of all, on the time, I always said you should be spending about, I-, I wanted to spend about a quarter of my time on people. So I would have, you know, absolutely 90-minute one-on-one with each of my direct reports every month. And if they wanted me to read something beforehand, they had to get it to me 48 business hours beforehand, courtesy, because I want to really deep dive and listen to you and hear what you've got to say. But on the skip meetings, you know, I do a couple of them every week and work my way around the business. Now, this issue of time it is our most precious commodity. It's more, it's more precious than money. It's more precious than anything. And there is enough of it if you start setting boundaries and say no to wastage meetings. And the audience may know what I'm talking about with wastage meetings. There's a whole lot of stuff you don't need to be in. And certainly I had to work that out the hard way by being burnt out. But there's a whole lot of stuff that I was getting invited to because people, you know, well, I was attending probably to be nice and polite to people. And so you're going to need to really set your boundaries. In the end, I think in the last role I did, which I was running, you know, a really big business, with a couple of thousand people, in the end, in that role, over the couple of years I was in it, I think I worked one weekend over a couple of years, and that was during the middle of the pandemic, and I worked past six o'clock less than 10 times over a couple of years. And that's because I just set really, really strong boundaries around what was going to be important versus what other everyone else thought they needed me to be at. So that's the time management thing. Then the processing and really listening, that takes some time. And I actually just used to carve out Half an, I'm a meditator. That really helps with stress release and focus. And I used to just carve out half an hour, somewhere between two and four every afternoon to just go and meditate. And that would be when, you know, I thought I was saying my mantra, but actually what I'd just been told actually sat in my head and came to light. Margot, there's a lot of talk about the Gen Z, uh, and we do it a bit on this podcast, that they're the most opinionated, educated, capable, particularly young women, extraordinary cohort of people moving through the workplaces at the moment. I have a number on staff. They are value-driven. They expect a lot of me and a lot of my workplace. I'm interested to know if I'm a Gen Z and I walk into a workplace, what is toxic and what is just this is what workplaces are like? Yeah. Well, listen, first of all, I love that. I love that because if this is the women coming through now, I think the world's in great shape. First of all, how you feel matters. So if you're feeling that you can't be your professional self, we don't, you don't have to be your home self. Look, let's just <laughs> calm down on all that authenticity. If you feel that you can't be your professional self, if you feel that you are belittled, ridiculed, whatever that is, then that really matters. Whatever's happening for you really, really matters. And the moment that you've worked out that you feel that is the moment to start thinking about what you could possibly do about it. Now, this is something we all need to believe, and I believe it is true. Change has always happened by one person acting. In everything that's happened ever in the world, change has happened by one person acting. And so that's going to be hard. You don't have to throw yourself on every grenade, but just by not buying into the toxicity, just by being a greater good operator, by caring for yourself and caring for other people, by speaking up when you feel safe enough to do so, you will effect change. You can't change the whole organisation today, but people will notice that. There's always, in terms of a broader action, there's always a balance between taking action and keeping yourself safe because safety is really important. 
So that's that's something, you know, you might take action, you might go and speak to your boss, you might go and speak to the people who you think are toxic, all those sort of things. I think put people around you, get support around you if you're going to do that, role play it. And really, really importantly, Helen, before you decide something's toxic, yes, listen to yourself, but also see it from everyone else's point of view too because your reaction to toxicity might not be everyone's reaction. Other people might actually have had different experiences, different values, different beliefs and go, yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a rough and tumble, but, you know, I'm okay with this. I think it's when you see people being damaged, that's when you know. You've talked a lot about the mistakes you made. Can you just give us a quick run through about of your top three or four mistakes that you made as a leader? Yeah, so the, I think the rescuing for me was a big thing. I just, I just really wanted to bring this humanity to leadership. Uh, I still do, but what I know now is that that means being brave, clear and fair. I thought earlier on that that meant, that meant pleasing everyone. The person who paid the big price for that was me. Um, as I said before, I was having my babies at the time. I was the main breadwinner. I was working in an investment bank. I was fighting to get flexibility. This is 17 years ago. We didn't have any paid maternity leave. We had no money, you know. So I put a lot of pressure on myself and I, I life would have been a lot easier if I'd actually stopped doing my team's jobs for them and actually held them to account, trusted myself to have the hard conversations. So that's number one. And I certainly don't do that anymore. Number two is just stepping into my power more. As I became more and more senior, the issues I was dealing with were so market changing and so public and so, you know, the ramifications for everyone were massive. And I really learned how to disagree with the board, with the CEO. But earlier on, it used to burn inside me because I could see a better way, but I didn't speak up enough because I was, to me, I felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips. You know, if I can't make this work, it's on the train back to Swan Hill and (laughs) being a conveyancer or something like that. So, and the third... Yeah, it's probably just didn't look after myself enough. And I'm, I'm absolutely evangelical about that now. I, I have to put myself first and that's a great joy of what I do now. All right, let's talk about the skills that you think are most important to a good leader today. Well, I don't know why people call them soft skills, Helen, because the way you interact with people, your ability to listen to other people, your ability to understand, put yourself in someone else's shoes, your ability to really deliver a hard message when you need to, these are the things that create great businesses. These are not soft skills. These are performance skills. So that's the thing that I've always focused on and I believe that's been a key part of my success. Did you want three or was that just one? They're good. They're really good. What sort of leader are you? You'd have to ask the people who who have led. Yeah. What would you like like people to say about you as a leader? I would like people to say that Margot does the right thing. She doesn't do what's easy. She does what's right. And I think most people would say that. I've got some feedback about 15 years ago from a peer who was much older and very wise that I needed to practice active listening. And that hit me in my heart because I knew, I knew I talked over people, but I was so excited and I really wanted to, you know, understand. I wanted to show them that I was with them. And, but it meant I talked over a lot of people. One of the great, the best thing that was said about me um, when I left my last job was that, Margot, you just listen, you really listen. And... God, it's relaxing when you learn to listen and you don't have to say everything and you just keep asking why and keep asking questions and it makes such a difference to people. So I hope people would say that about me too. But people would say I do the right thing. People would say I'm brave. Can you spell the difference between someone who's done a lot of thinking and work on their leadership versus someone who's just got to the top by being good at their job? I can't. No, I can't. You know, when when that when you ask me that, what goes through my head is, 
there's a lot of people who've read a lot of books, but they think it's, they still think the relationship stuff and the personal interaction stuff is soft skills. They're still caught up in the strategic frameworks and the data and the spreadsheets and the analysis and all that, which is actually just a starting point. You need to be able to do all that, but that's just a starting point. Um, what makes the difference is how you interact with people. So I would say there might be a whole lot of people in that category who've read a lot of HBR articles, but are still not that great at the relationship stuff. And there might be a whole lot of people who haven't really looked into it, but are naturally great listeners and great connectors and great communicators. So I can't spot that, no. Uh, they turned the tables on me a couple of weeks ago and Jamila Rizvi, who is a great leader, interviewed me and asked me what sort of leader I am. And I was disparaging of the concept of collaborative leadership because I think it's a very fashionable thing to say at the moment that, you know, I'm collaborative as a leader. But any time I've tried collaborative leadership, really people just want a direction. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like... I'm done with yeah. collaboration. <laughs> Key people, you listen, you take in, you know what you have to achieve at the end of the day and then you set a direction and everyone just seems a lot happier. Do you agree with that or I would think, you challenge me oh, on I th that? I think it's, it just depends on the moment. Yeah. So I have this big thing that I've been talking a lot lately about boss, you're wrong. Be the leader who hears that a lot. Like for a lot of things, yes, boss just needs to set the direction. Choose which hill we're going to climb, we'll climb it, you know. But there are some things, and particularly you get into this murky world of pandemic and trying to get clients money during COVID. And we've got, we actually had clients suiciding because we couldn't get them the money in time and their businesses were going under these terrible situations in Melbourne, which we know was the most locked down city in Australia. So these, these situations. So what I think is really important is there are times when you want you to get your team together. And I used to do this all the time to say, we've got a decision to make. I will make it. I will take responsibility. I will not absolve myself of responsibility. I'm going to tell you what I think. And the reason I've called this meeting is I want you to tell me what I'm wrong, where I'm wrong. I want you to give me the opposite view. And I always hired people who would disagree with me. And there are times when that's really important. It's still my call, but everyone, every month when we had our leadership meeting, I would look around the room and say, okay, let's panel beat this, let's debate, let's whatever. And that's for psychological safety. So yeah, you've got to own the decision and hopefully your direct reports are clear on what decisions are theirs. Like there should be a lot of stuff you're not deciding day to day that your direct reports can decide. But the collaborative, it's, I don't call it collaborative leadership so much. I, I just call it, I've got this disruption against compliance. I think it's a problem in leadership and just going with what your boss wants. Well, you just make me think about that niceness, right? And yeah. creating a nice environment yeah. and wanting to be nice and yeah. being nice and yeah. being likable and, you know, listening and being collaborative and being a great leader often relates to, you know, often links to being nice. Mm. But if you had a leadership team that's nice and you're all getting along, it's very easy for groupthink to kick in yeah. over time. Yeah. So it's actually very hard to, yeah. I think, lead against groupthink. Yeah, that's right. So nice is not safe. So I said before, you mm. know, once you've chosen the right people, the single biggest predictive performance, and that's what we're there to do, is psychological safety. Nice is agreeing when you actually disagree. Nice is not putting the dead cats on the table, as we used to say. That's unsafe because particularly when, you know, like we were dealing with thousands of people or dealing with people's money or dealing with the Hain Royal Commission and we have our CEO and our chair have just departed on the same day, whatever that is, you are going to get in trouble and lead your team into danger if you are nice. It's about respect, debate. It's about, you know, I'm AFL background. It's about playing the ball, not the person. With the intention, the, the best teams we've worked in and we've all got sporting teams or whatever it is, 
the best teams we've, we've been in are the ones where we can have it out knowing that actually Margot is, is arguing with Helen because Margot wants to take this to the next level, not because she needs to be right. Drop your ego and deal with what needs to be dealt with. How do you drop your ego? Well, ego is fear. People think ego is confidence. It's not. People say, oh, he's got a big ego or she's got a big ego if someone's sort of self-aggrandizing or what, what have you. But ego is fear. Ego is really fear of not being big enough. And so, you know, my ego says, I mean, I'm a lawyer after all, I love an argument. And I have been caught in situations where I'm now in an argument, I'm entrenched in my position and I've got to be right. Now, actually, what's going on for me in that moment is if I'm not right, then I'm not worthwhile. That's fear. What if I could be wrong and still like myself? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, actually going and saying that to someone, listen, I got stuck in my position. I want to hear what you, I wasn't listening to you because I was committed to being right. That's a great thing to do. If you want to build a connection with someone, you, gotta, you can't do that with everyone. Like some people it's just not safe to <laughs> lower your guns. But most people go, gee, what, wasn't that a brave thing of Margot to do? Now let's sort it out. What advice would you give to a 30-year-old leader today? I'd say be yourself. I'd say you have been put there. doesn't matter the reasons you put there. Maybe you were put there because you're thinking they needed a woman in the role or whatever. I mean, I've been through all that. Hey, you're there. Drive it like you stole it. That's what I say. Be yourself. Understand that everything that happens to you is given to you so that you can grow. You will have villains around you. You will have people who are damaging because they're just inept. They don't realise. This is all given to you, not so that you can fall into judgment of them or judgment of yourself, but actually so that you can work through it and you can be a better leader and and just trust that because it's exhilarating. Margot, thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.